May 29th, 2022. This morning's class is uh, in memory of Eliyahu ben Salha, that's Louis Shami Alav HaShalom. I'd like to, for a few moments, talk to you about a concept and an idea that rings true at any time during the year in terms of its development, in terms of its understanding of halakha, but it's particularly relevant today on Yom Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is, through the eyes of our nation for many years, many generations, envisioned as the place of unity. It's in the eyes of the Hachamim, Milashon Shalem. Uh, they trace back to the Ir Shalem being the... Uh, precedent with regards to Yerushalayim. Shalem, of course, means something that's complete. They cite that pasuk that it's Yerushalayim has this Hebur nature to it. It's the eyes of the rabbis as well. Yerushalayim whereas many, if not all the other cities in Eris Israel were divided amongst the different tribes. Yerushalayim, the famous line in the Gemara in one or two places is Yom Yerushalayim then is the day in which we focus most on what brings us together as opposed to that which divides us. That all being the case, what I'd like to talk about is moments of unity in Jewish history with regards to halakha. Now, I know that might be a tall task. Halakha is far from being a unifying force, perhaps, as it was supposed to be or could be. Halakha, generally speaking, you look at the person just this morning. Someone asked me, what's the proper way to put on tefillin? He looked at the two people next to him, and each of them was wearing it differently. I remember when my, my son put on his tefillin, my father-in-law took a look at them. He said, it's not how I put on my tefillin. His rabbi took a look at it. He said, it's not the way I put it on. It's not your way. There's all sorts of different ways of doing halachot with regards to our day-to-day life. Far from being unifying, halakha, at least historically, and I'm not bemoaning this fact, has not been something which unified us. But there's been junctures in time during which, and I'd like to talk about that from the vantage point of both history and halakha, during which the rabbis have seen it as an appropriate moment to bring the people together, specifically through halakha. It reminds me in this context of, if you remember, on uh, September 12th through, I don't know, uh, uh, January and beyond of 2001 and beyond, after 9-11, if, if you recall, walking the streets of Brooklyn and anywhere else really for that matter in America, every single home, and I tell my children this all the time, had an American flag, irrespective of quote-unquote, your past loyalties to the country after a time of attack, during a time during which we felt dispersed, during what I oftentimes call rupture in our history. It was an opportunity, it was almost an innate, intuitive drive by us to come together. That's what we did as a nation, and that's what over the course of many years, in my mind, halakha has done. So I'll, for a few moments, together with you, bring you through, at least in my mind, a little bit of a history of sorts with regards to that loti We'll talk about that pasuk in just a moment, keeping it together, how halakha has at points, and we'll see it consistently, been envisioned by the hachamim shebechol dor vador as an opportunity to bring the people together as a unifying factor. One last irony before we begin. The vantage point from which I will see this all through, the beginning point in this, is in source number one. It's in Shohan Aruch or Ahayim Siman Taf Sadigimal Saif Gimal. Anyone who knows about Siman Taf Sadigimal, that's the halachot we just passed of the Omer, until the 33rd of the Omer, and including the 33rd, for us, we have many of these minhagim, minhagim of avelut, of mourning. And the reason, of course, tracing itself back to the Gimaran beforehand, is the students of Bi'akiva, the Gimaran Masechit Yevamot, 
teaches they died during this time period. A late custom developed in the time of the Geonim. The Gemara has no customs mentioned with regard to the Omer. The Gemara just states this legend of the students of Rabbi Akiva, the pairs of 12,000 times two students, 24,000 students dying during that time period. The Gemara says, what time did that happen? Which means that it was still, at least according to that version, still going on. As a result, the Geonim, Geonim is post-Talmudic time period, mentions specifically Minhagim, which began uh, in their time period, maybe a bit beforehand, specifically marriages and happy occasions. That's what the Geonim mentioned. Ironically, a Minhag, which is not mentioned in Talmud and is not even mentioned by the Geonim, has become perhaps the most focal during that time period, and that's shaving and taking haircuts more specifically. And the reason I say it's the most focal is, if you were to ask me, certainly this year, statistically speaking, the most questions I got in text messages and phone calls was regarding could I take a haircut today on Lag Omer this year? There's no question in my mind. I'm dealing up in the 20, 30 or so amount from students in high school to men to women. Everyone's asking about haircuts during this time period. It's a custom which is so distant and so late from the time of Talmud. It's not mentioned in the words of the Geonim. I'm not saying it's not binding. It is in Shohan Aruch. I'm just mentioning with regards to what we're most, and it's not so surprising, ironically, what we're most nervous, I, when I first became a rabbi, so my father told me, you should notice and realize that the questions people are going to ask you, quote unquote, are the least severe, always. The most severe matters they're never interested in. But I'm going to be away. I remember he taught me on this one early. I'm going to be away on the day of Arayat. What do I do? So that's always going to be a question. So I said, so I said how do I do? He said, you'll tell them to read Tehillim on that day. I said, why are you telling me? He said, because you're going to have the first, sure enough, first year, 10 people ask me, Arayat's important. It's not halacha, Arayat's minhag. It's very important, and we have a real close association with the deceased person, but in terms of halacha, it's not halacha. So this one as well, no different. Now, I mention it as well to tell you the reason so many people ask that question is because there are so many different minhagim. Turn to an Egyptian, and they'll tell you that they take haircuts on Rosh Chodesh Iyar. Turn to a Syrian, and they'll tell you that they shave throughout the Omer and they've been doing it since the days of Maran Shohan Aruch. Turn to an Ashkenazi and some of them will tell you they get married in the first half and not in the second half. Turn to others, Mekubalim of sorts, and they'll tell you they have the Minhagim throughout the Omer. There's so many different Minhagim. Can you imagine? It's in this context that I begin the class of keeping it together because Ramar Bimoshe Isilis, of course, a Polish 16th century rabbi, and his glasses to Shohan Aruch there in Siman Tafsadi Gimal first records different customs with regards to taking haircuts during the Omer when it's appropriate in the first half of the Omer and the second half of the Omer on Rosh Chodesh not on Rosh Chodesh he says make certain that you don't accept all the leniencies because then you'll be taking haircuts throughout says Ramat the final line over here in source number one Velo yin hagu, thir- three lines from the top Be'ir ahat, you should make certain that in a single city they should not have customs Miksat min or Miksat min you should not be split on your customs within one city. Mishum lotit godidu. Because of this concept of not dividing. How ironic. This is the most, in my mind, divisive minhag that we have. And it's on this, and specifically on this, that Rama makes a statement, don't be divided on it. Magen Abraham, one of the important commentaries, super commentaries to Shohan Aruch, has a long gloss on this matter, describing the background of Lotit Kodidu. It's the one that we've 
utterly and completely failed at. But now that we've had the vantage point, let's understand what Lotit Godedu is, how it has been developed over time, and how it affects us perhaps today, maybe more than ever, or maybe less than ever. Question? Yeah, Rabbi, when you say Yom can, can now, since it comes during the Omer... Fantastic. Even better, Yom Ha'asma'ut. Can you imagine how, during the time period where Rabbi is telling us, don't be divided, Yom Ha'asma'ut, even if you're a staunch Zionist, do you do half a Halil or a full Halil with a Beracha, without a Halil? Do you not at all? He's got a haircut on that day and so forth, that's right. And I'll remind you as well, by the way, that this time period, the students of Biakiva's passing was because because they weren't, they weren't unified. And as a result, this time period is perhaps the most polarizing time period. Okay, so it goes, but here's the background. It starts with the Pasuk in Devarim Perek Yodalit, Pasuk Aleph, in source number two. So God tells us, or Moshe tells us, that you are children to God. Lotitko dedu. There are the words. Lotitko dedu. We'll have to define those words in a moment. And you should not, well, this one would be not very applicable to me, nor to Gabby. Um, you're not to uh, put a bald spot in between your eyes on, on, a, on a deceased person. Why not? Well, starting backwards, why not? Why are you not balding yourself? That was Darkeha Emori. That's the way the pagan idolaters of the land of Kena'an were doing, and as a result, inappropriate for you to do so. They mourned by cutting or ripping out or shaving the middle of their hair. You shouldn't be doing so. What's Lotitko to do? Well, in context, we already understand it has something to do with some sort of mutilation of the body in the context of mourning. That's all it has to do. It refers to putting a gash on your body. It refers to bruising yourself or afflicting o- yourself overly, with a wound. O- overly mourning. Overly mourning, which is inappropriate according to Torah law. Nothing more and nothing less. If that were the case, if it ended there with the Peshat and Pesukim, we would not have a class right now because it's just telling you, don't beat yourself up. It's not the way the rabbis interpret it. Now, the interpretation of the rabbis that we'll arrive at in a moment or two, uh, before reading the Musar on this matter, is debated. The question is, is this binding from the Torah, their interpretation? Sometimes you have interpretations of rabbis which are far from Peshat and Pesukim. It's not a simple interpretation of the Pasuk, and nonetheless we accept it as binding on the biblical level, which has and has had many classes in and of itself to discuss how that works. Generally speaking, we assume this concept, Lotit Godidu, rises to the severity of a biblical mandate. What's the mandate? Well, anybody who's walked down, I don't know, just about any block in any neighborhood in Brooklyn, you'll see there are synagogues, there are signs for synagogues. It's a whole institution which comes together. It's called Agudat Israel. whereas in the Ashkenazic world, there's the young Israels and there's the Agudat Yisrael. Those are generally speaking, anyone who's been to Siyum Hashas, Siyum Hashas, Madison Square Garden, is Agudat Yisrael. Agudah, it's a whole institution which has many, many synagogues and affiliations with regards to it, is a reference to being bound together. Le'egod means to bind. As a result, instead of reading this as a gash, the rabbis envision this as lo titgodedu, don't create bindings. Don't separate yourselves and make disparate, disjointed groups. That being the case, of course, that leaves a lot open to consideration. What does that mean? Of course, and in past classes we have discussed this, what do you do if you're a Svaradi praying in a Chabad? I know that's the only relevant situation. I did a class on this. At the end of the class, someone, Jeffrey Gindi, said to me, said, you know, this is not relevant at all. I talked about a Svaradi praying in an Ashkenazi synagogue. He said, we don't do that. I know you think that's right. So then what we came up with, we came, I said, half, half my life I prayed with Ashkenazi. This was so relevant. All the questions in half my life where I was praying with Ashkenazi, I spoke with 
Chacham Yaakov Yosef, that's Chacham Ovadia's oldest son, Allah Veshalom, about this. I had all these sorts of questions. I gave a class just uh, a couple months ago. I thought it was the most relevant issue in the world. It was interesting, Lotit God to do, and he said, when do we? But the answer is Chabad. Chabad. That's it. No, yeah, when you travel. But uh, all right, I'm not going to expose what he explained to me about the standard Syrian. They said it's either a Sefaradi Minyan or bust, unless it's Chabad. <laughs> unless it's Chabad. So anyway, that being the case, that being the case, yeah, that's right. So there you go. There, there you were a minute ago telling me when you travel. Anyway, so so with that being the case, okay, it's so a separate class on that. What what is a Sefaradi to do in the context of Ashkenazim? Ashkenazim in context of Sefaradi. I don't want to go there specifically today. But I want to trace the background over here. First and foremost, if you look at source number three and source number four, those are earlier sources. That's Sifre. Sifre, you see, when it comes to Midrashim, we generally associate the word Midrash as stories and interpretations of the stories in the Torah and messages. That's what's called Midrash Agadah. That's later Midrashim. Those are Midrashim from the Emoraim, from the rabbis from the time of the Gemara. They have earlier Midrashim known as Sifre and Sifra, or alternatively Torah Kohanim. That's Midrash Halacha is what we refer to it as in Mechil. Midrash Halakha is the names of rabbis from the time of the Mishnah, so it pushes it back even earlier. Much of Gemara is really drawing from Midrash Halakha. So Sifre is the Midrash Halakha, which traces itself earlier than the Midrash Agada, from the time of the Mishnah. So you're going back almost 2,000 years or so with regards to the traditions that are being related over there. The description over there is a Musar. Even though it's Midrash Halakha, it's a Musar. Don't divide yourselves. There's an example given in source number four more relevant than they probably even imagined it. They said if you take two boats and you bring them out to sea and you anchor them uh, strong in a strong fashion and then you build on top of it, you have to make certain that those two boats at the bottom are fastly, uh, fastened tightly to one another. Otherwise, anything that's built on top crumbles. So too, God speaks to Am Yisrael and says, if you're not combined in this world, so, so to speak, my kingdom up above, is mitmotet, is, is deteriorating as well. It's a musar. It's a description of seek unity, understand that divisiveness will do you no good. There's no, and this is the opportunity to talk halakha. It's midrash halakha after all. There's no mention in these contexts, in our earlier sources that descri- describe lotit kodidu, any halakha bear- bearing whatsoever. It's just don't be divided. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less. It's a musash mus that we gave last night in Saudash Elishit. It would be very relevant in that context. Gabby, it just has no halakha it's bearing. Just, it has you're a just philosophizing a word. I mean, that's all. That's right. And as a result. I hate to say it like this, you're most comfortable, as am I, to a certain extent, with these midrashim. If we were to suffice with that and say there's no binding law in the structure of halakha system, it makes a lot of sense. You're taking a pasuk and you're philosophizing, you're turning it into a dirasha. If it stopped over there, I remind you, it might be a good message for Yomir Shalim, but it won't describe us anything in the context of development of halakha. It's source number five, Talmud Bavli, it's in Talmud Yerushalmi as well, in a different version, in Masechet Yivam on Daf Yod Gimal, spilling over into Daf Yod where the rabbis take this to mean more than just a nice and important philosophical message, a Musar message of keeping together. They understand it as you may not be divided in halacha. How do we define divided in halacha? So there's several statements. First and foremost, the Gemara begins, it says, and I skipped some of the back and forth, I'm reading from source number five, 
יקראי כאן לא תתגודדו, לא תעשו אגודות אגודות. The context of the Gemara for our purpose is not so important right now, but this is the statement, says Reish Lakish, I have such a concept of don't make אגודות אגודות, don't make those synagogues, don't make groups and groups in the context of halacha. Says the Gemara, don't you need it in order to tell you not to do gashes? Answers the Gemara, there's specific ways that the word is written in the Torah. Says the Gemara, if that's the case, I'm in the second paragraph now. Amar le adkan lo shanita makom shenagu laasot melacha ba'arve pesachim ad chasot osin makom shenagu shelo laasot en osin. Rabbi Yochanan challenges over here. Rabbi Yochanan says, the Gemara and Mishnah and Masechet Pesachim and Dafnun Aleph says, there's different minhagim with regards to not doing melacha on Erev Pesach. Different minhagim. And the Mishnah says, if you come from one of the places where they don't do melacha, the severe Mahmir place, that's where you're supposed to follow. Wait a second. I thought, lo ta'asu agudot agudot. You're not allowed to follow such a custom. If the community over here is not doing so, you can't follow such a custom. Answers the Gemara importantly, Resh Lakish, Amina lach ana isura, after the ellipsis, ve'at amartli minhaga, response is, I was talking about halacha, I was talking about isur, you're quoting a minhag? That's already a very important point. His this answer, of, the answer of Resh Lakish is this concept of not being divided is when it comes to, is this kosher, is that not kosher? We have to accept that. Is this permitted, is that not permitted? I have to accept that. Do you have such a practice? Do I have such a, when I was younger, I asked my father, I remember it like yesterday, it was, uh, it was a Friday night, it was on Avenue N and East 4th. We lived M&N and East 4th. On our corner was the Avenue N Jewish Center. Today, as was like everything else, and Flappish took over. It's now the Barkai Minyan. There was no Barkai Minyan. There was not a Syrian to be found. And we prayed upstairs with Rabbi Schreier. We prayed in the Ashkenazic Minyan. Was already becoming a little bit expired, but it was still there was still a crowd. And I remember asking him. Everybody was sitting down for the chadodi. I said, "Why do we stand up for the chadodi?" My father said to me, "That's a minhag." I said, "What's a minhag?" He says, "It's a practice." I said, "So can I sit down?" He said, "You could sit down. This is our custom." And then I went to my friend. I remember Aryeh Weinstein on a Friday night, and they sat down for the chadodi. And I came over. I said, "How can we stand up for the chadodi?" He says, "A minhag." When we talk about minhag in this context, there are different types of minhagim. For example, halel on Rosh Chodesh is described by many of the Rishonim as a minhag, and there's a question whether you make a beracha on that or not. But we're not dealing with something that's mutar or asur, something that's kosher or not kosher. Minhag, and as a result, the response over here is there's no problem with regards to minhagim of separating. It's for that reason that... None of you have ever seen this, I imagine, back to our conversation from earlier, but I used to visit, uh, then I became a rabbi of a synagogue, didn't need to do this any longer, I used to visit my in-laws on the holidays, and my in-laws didn't pray in an aguda, although I used to pray in the aguda around the corner for them as well in, uh, in, in uh, Staten Island. I'm sorry, I needed to come out, you need a little beating in the context. Anyway, and so you'd always see amongst Ashkenazim some people on Hola Mo'ed, both Pesach and Sukkot, who put on tefillin and others who don't put on tefillin. Uh, Ronnie, you familiar with this one? What's the min, what's the minhag? I know you. Hasidic, Hasidic is uh, no sure. Uh, sure. Now, the Hasidic. That's right. That's right. Ultimately speaking, it's a separate class which we did. Ultimately speaking, the reasons Faradim and following Shochan Aruch don't put on tefillin is based on Zohar. Ultimately speaking, that's what decided this because there was really a split all the way back, and as a result, the Hasidim continued to not put on and Sfaradim as well, and Ashkenazim, old school Ashkenazim, put on tefillin. Today, 
And I, my father-in-law told me today, you'll rarely see an Ashkenazi who puts on tefillin or It's a fascinating thing. It's Minhag America. If you went back to the old country, Minhag America. There's a lot of there's a lot of Minhag Americas. No, they don't. You're saying that we go lenient, Joe. It's far from it. Yeah, yeah. Convenient, but yeah. But I do remember before I talk about Minhag America for a second. I do remember. I, but I'm. Young Israel of, of Woodmere, you find? In Young Israel, yeah, a lot of people. Uh-huh. So the young Israel of Staten Island, I'm told, is much, much, much less than they used to be. And there's not so many. He said a lot of people. He didn't say the shul does. Yeah, but oh, even so, but there's still some that are putting on. But it's now half is significant. So there's always the question of there's always the question of Am I allowed to put on tefillin if the synagogue's not? Are they allowed to not put on tefillin if the synagogue is? That's the type of issue that gets raised. Another one that's very notable as well, again, you never experience this one, the way we do the na'anu'im on Sukkot is one way. The way the Ashkenazim do it, the way also other communities, all different ways. What am I supposed to do? Custom. Do I say in that context? That's another interesting question. Same thing as Similar, but Altifrosh Min Hasibur is a, 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 a piety. You shouldn't separate. This is halakha, which is interesting. We've done many classes on this, how a midrash transforms into halakha. Here's another midrash, which transformed into practical and literal, literal halakha. Question is whether it'll be binding. What's that? Tefillin on a half day fast. Minhag Syrians America. You have Minhag, Minhag, uh, if you say so. Now what I'm told. I'll tell you, another Minhag America, Minhag America is, uh, now that we're talking about the Omer, Minhag America is, you know, there's a whole question, are you allowed to listen? This is another, this is in the top ten as well. Can I listen to music during the Omer? Listening to music during the Omer, if it's not live, if it's recorded, but as if we're going to have sourcing on this. We've been recording music off of records for a whole of 40 years. I, you want me to tell you the sources on this? I mean, what are we supposed to do on this? There's Rabbi Belsky, Rabbi Belsky, Alav HaShalom, from the OU. He writes in his book, in Yad HaLevi, I think it's called, he writes, this is Minhag America. That all of a sudden we decide if it's a cappella as opposed to if it's this. I mean, we made this, there's a whole, Minhag America, now there's all sorts of, now it's only a matter of time till we're going to have 400 pages on the different Minhagim with regards to a cappella with one voice or two voices and so forth but anyway what I tell you in the context of this Gemara and this Halakha is the Gemara very clearly or seemingly very clearly distinguishes between Minhag and Isur with regards to this Halakha the Gemara continues and significantly concludes the Gemara records 100% I'm not defining it accordingly I'm not, I'm not going there yet but Minhag like when in Rome, do as the Romans. That's right? the statement, but more than that, you must do like the Romans, you right? Must. In other words, that's that's the statement. What you're talking about is, is two days and one day when you go to Israel. Yeah, so just <laughs> say say yes, <laughs> that's what an important that issue that the Gemara calls it. The Gemara and Masechet Beza calls it Minhag Avotenu Biadenu. The Gemara does call it Minhag Avotenu, and it is raised in that context. There is a discussion in that context. Not going to go there today. Maybe not going to go there ever. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not, certainly not on recording. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, and I will tell you furthermore, the Gemara now, the Gemara now concludes, and the Gemara has a mahloke between Abaye and Rava about how and when to apply this lotit godidu. First opinion, that of Abaye, he says, if there are two batedinim, two courts 
two, we might call it communities, in a single city. One says like Beit Shammai and the other one says like Beit Hillel. In such a circumstance, inappropriate to have two batedinim telling and preaching two separate things. Again, imagine it as, well, not so different than any community we've been a part of. One community center saying X, the other community center saying Y. That's Abaye's opinion. He says if it's two separate cities, two separate communities, then it's appropriate. That's a very significant, it's Abaye. Generally speaking, we don't follow Abaye. We follow Rava, except for the notable six exceptions of Ya'al Kigam. So we're not getting that nervous yet. We have two brothers that do separate things. 100%, you should be getting nervous now. You and John, yeah. Understood, understood. I'm making the jump. I'm making the jump because Harambam makes the jump. The Gemara, you know the Harambam. We'll read it in a second. Amale Rava, Rava disagrees. Rava says this would not be an issue. Rava in the bottom line, Kigon Betin Beirahat says Rava. This is and and by the way, that's in that class on Svaradim and Ashkenazim. If we should apply it, so, so but anyway, Rava's statement is it's only in a single court, call it a single community for our purposes. There, if you have the two brothers, Sammy and Joe, so in such a circumstance, inappropriate to have two separate minagim. That's Rava. That's already a little bit more lenient in this respect. So what we've established thus far, again, is uh, several things. First and foremost, and I'm going to stop to notice something, because that's the trajectory of the class, to notice that when we went from the time of Mishnah, which is generally speaking envisioned as a more peaceful time for our nation. It's when we had a bunch of that time sovereignty. We were living in Israel. During that time period, this concept of lotit kodidu, not, not uh, branching out and having separate minhagim, wasn't addressed in the halachic context. That only becomes a reality when we get into Talmud. Makes a lot of sense. You're several hundred years, you're understanding exile, destruction. It's a community which is already somewhat splintered. The rabbis envisioning, realizing the dire straits situation of their people say, Lotit Kodidu is no longer just an altifrosh minat sibur. It's no longer just a nice idea. It's halachically binding. Yeah, it's Let's bring us together. Totally What's that? Totally it might be so but they're certainly putting goal. in a valiant try but I'm already pointing out to you in terms of history we see a progression with regards to Lotit Kodidu whereas initially there wasn't any thought of so they do differently than one another in Talmud Yerushalmi interestingly the vision is for one reason or another that Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel never did differently they only thought differently but generally speaking we assume they did differently and we weren't bothered by that it's only in the time of Rabbi Yohanan Rish Lakish Abayi and Rava we're dealing 1500 years instead of 2000 years ago that we start getting most nervous about that as bring it back to the 9-11 example as we get dispersed as we feel as if there's a rupture in our nation we bind together we have laws and rules which we want to be governing a singular track in that respect that's already the progression with regards to yes, Charles. Yeah, that's what I was say. I mean, from history Jewish communities always been moving so you go based on the people that were there first the communities that were there first great that's, question that's, I mean, great I mean, question I mean, getting there Getting there at this at this point, I don't have any vantage point. Again, at this point, the best I have right now is it's a new concept. It's a fifteen hundred year old concept. I don't want to. Yeah, it's halab, and the question, of course, you have musta'aravim, and then you have also twenty bateknesiot or so. hundred percent. I, I I am I am suggesting and demonstrating that. Hence, hence the series, Eli, development of halacha. Well, that being the case, I'll, I'll take a break for a moment to just point out to you that this matter, 
developed further in the time of Harambam. You see Harambam in source number 7, number 8, and number 9. I'll demonstrate it specifically from source number 8. Harambam in source number 8 is in a response. He's responding to a question. Apparently there was some rabbi, some hacham who appears in the community, whichever community I, f- I forgot he's, he's dealing with, and he's standing up for what's called Kedusha Diyoser. You know, in Shahrit we say Kadosh, 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 Baruch, Shem, Baruch Kivod Amonai Mekomo, in the middle of Kedusha Diyoser, not only in Naktishach, we have it before and then we have it in Nubalesion as well. And he would stand up when we got up to that in the tefillah. The question from Harambam to, to Harambam was, half of our community started following this newfound custom. What are we to do? Said Harambam, everybody must sit down. It's asur for you to stand up. Why is it asur for you to stand up? You're now branching out and making splinter groups. Fascinating statement. Even on a minhag. It's, it's, it's reminiscent of the Lechadodi. It's reminiscent of the Shalom Aleichem. All of a sudden, says Harambam, it applies even seemingly, he's going to have to be clever, and he is, in interpreting the Gemara, why this isn't contradicting the Gemara, which explicitly said, I'm talking about Minhag, I'm talking about Isur, and you're talking about Minhag, but Harambam very clearly in source number 7, in Hilchot Avodah Zara, ubichlal azhara zo, shelo yehu shene batet dinim bi'irahat, ze noheg b'minhag ze, you cannot and may not have two separate minhagim in a single city. Number one, Harambam seems to be Harambam seems to be siding with Abaye, contrary to what we accept, expected him to be more lenient with the opinion of Rabban. Number two, he's extending this even to a minhag. Says Harambam, what's my reason? What's my rationale? Because davar ze gorem lemachloket gedola, it will lead to splinter groups. It will lead to divisiveness. That's the rationale. It's contrary, interestingly, to Rashi. Rashi in the interpretation to the Gemara. That's right. Maybe today it would be different. And Rashi in the Gemara says that it looks wrong. Not that it brings to divisiveness, says Rashi. Looks wrong. He's doing one way, another person doing another way. It looks like we have more than one Torah. Harambam says it brings to Mahloket. I'm not certain about this, but I can tell you Harambam was living during a time of turmoil, turmoil, during a time of turbulence. There were different splinter groups. There were the Karaites, which were potentially, according to some scholars, more strong than the traditional group of Egypt in his day. Certainly stands to reason, I'm not saying that's what inspires him, but I am saying stands to reason that he has well, furthermore, strengthens and, and elongates the concept of lotitko didu. It's no longer just conceptual in terms of proper action. It's no longer just with regards to one betin having two separate customs. It's two communities in the same uh, in the same environment. It's no longer just to isurim. It's even to minhagim. That being the case, I take you 300 or so years forward. I bring it to the time of Maran of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Now this one's easy in terms of the turmoil, in terms of the rupture in the Jewish nation. It's clear he's very honest about it. We're dealing with post-expulsion from Spain. We're dealing with post-expulsion from Portugal. Rabbi Yosef Karo makes his way from Toledo, Spain to Sefat. He composes there this, this masterful composition known as Bet Yosef. He transforms Bet Yosef into a book called known as Shohan Aruch, of course. Rabbi Yosef Karo, in describing what he's doing and what brings him to do it, describes the landscape of the Jewish world of his time. He says, we have a veritable ingathering of exiles. He didn't know what was happening in Europe, possibly, at the time. He knows what's going on. He's meeting Ashkenazim and Sfaradim and Sifat. He's seeing many different customs developing and coming... 
say what they wear. Technically, later. That's what he's going to do. I'm saying they, they, potentially. Potentially. Same time, different <clears throat> conclusions, but similarly inspired because of a rupture of sorts. Rabbi Yosef Karo describes how am I now? during a time in which we've been exiled for so long, during a time of dispersion, during a time in which we're now having some sort of ingathering, we're seeing each other, we're realizing it couldn't look any worse in terms of different practices, in terms of mahlokot. What am I to do? Says Shohan Aruch, I need a system. I'm going to set forth a system. In his introduction to Beit Yosef, he describes his system. I'm going to establish our three main decision makers. I'll call them Harambam, Rif, and, and Rosh. That's what, uh, that's what Rabbi Yosef Karo says. It is pointed out, it's interesting that he chose Rosh. Rosh was an Ashkenazic rabbi. He makes his way to Spain at the end of his life. Rosh defers to Rashba very often, a rabbi of Barcelona origin. It's interesting he chose Rosh and not Rashba. The suggestion of many, and Rabbi Yosef Karo almost says it explicitly, is he wants equal opportunity. He wants an Ashkenazic man in his Beit Din of sorts, in his top three. But continues Beit Yosef. He says, I'm going to go based on the majority of their decisions on any halachic decision. I have an issue. Is this Mutar Asur? I'm going to look what the three main rabbis say, and I'll go based on majority. What if there is no majority? Then we have a plethora of other sources. You'll have to leave it up to me, says Beit Yosef. What about, well, ultimately, it sounds democratic, but ultimately speaking, he closes everything, Dave. You understand? He says, there's no longer decision making. Before him, you decided this. Your community decided this. Now, if we're to buy into a Beit Yosef, Yosef Kato system, the decision's made already. He is. He is very clearly saying, I don't want divisiveness. I'm going to bring things together. Very appropriate for his time period. Whereas people are dreaming about Messiah during his time period. Gathering means they're coming to Israel. They were. In Sifat, you had synagogues, you had involvements. Go to Sifat today and see. I, I had to write an essay. I had to write something. I had to, yes, significant in and of itself. I had to write an essay for entrance into Yeshiva University. And the question was, as I recall, what generation, maybe if the honest book, I don't remember, what generation in Jewish history would you like to be uh, to live in? If you could go back. So I chose 16th century Sefat. My friends, I remember, chose Biakiva. And this, I said Sefat was the most interesting time period. 16th century. You have an ingathering, all different types of people. You have mystics who are dreaming of Messiah. You have lawmakers and so forth. You have disagreements. You have agreements on certain matters. You have Rabbi Yosef Karo who's championing. Absolutely. It was the, it was the rabbi. Rabbi. That's right. We did the class this year. The rabbi of Rabbi Yosef Karo, Mahari Beirav. Anyway, he concludes, he concludes his introduction by pointing out, he says in his final lines over here, he says, he says, there might be specific lands where they do differently than I'm describing. They should uphold their custom. Their ways. Says Rabbi Yosef Karo, I'm not going to negate pre-existing customs. If you're searching for a new approach, you should defer to me. If you're searching for what you've done, I'm not going to tell you not to do so. You can and may continue in such a fashion. There's the democratic side, Dave. He's allowing for a little leeway in this respect. But again, think about the general composition, direction, and trajectory of Bet Yosef. What is it? It's our third juncture of rupture in which we say let's unify 
to bring ourselves and forces together. Halakha is being used as a unifying factor. What's the first it's and second a, rupture? First one was the Gemara, exile from Eretz Yisrael. Lotit Godedu becomes a halacha. The second one we mentioned was Harambam in Egypt. He says even on Minhagim, he's dealing with a community, a time during which there's different communities developing. Our third one is Beit Yosef. He explicitly tells us his rationale. He says, dealing with many customs, many different communities, let's bring this together. He does, however, disagree with Harambam elsewhere with regards to Minhagim and Lotit Godedu. The question then and lastly on our question of how to deal with don't be divisive keeping it together is the following it's broadly I'm asking it broadly I'm asking you're living within a single community that's what I'm calling it and there's a synagogue on one side of the street and a synagogue on the other side of the street there's one block of one synagogue and the other block another synagogue may they have different halachot that was the question of the day in 16th century Jewish world. You're dealing with after the expulsion. You're dealing with Ashkenazic countries in which there were pogroms and there was dispersion as well. What are we to do in such a time? There was a tremendous debate and disagreement, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, amongst the rabbis. In the first two sources here, in source number 10, that's Rabbi Moshe al sheikh He's a contemporary. He dies in 1593. He started in Turkey and ends in Sefa at the end of his life. In the second source, Sheilo Tishabot Maharival, that's Rabbi Yosef ben Lib. He was a Greek rabbi. In each of these sources, the suggestion is that if we're dealing with Haimet, look at source number 10. His claim is all the synagogues must be, according to Halacha, unified. That's his claim. In Shelot Shabbat Marival, he talks about Greece, he talks about Saloniki. He says in Salonika, what we do is different synagogues do differently. Stop it. Bring them all together. You laugh at it. You realize it's impossible. Why are they saying this? And why are they saying it specifically then? Because they're finding, experiencing a time during which the division is no longer prosperous. It no longer gives us the vibrancy. It's now taking us down. Shalot to Shabbat Radach Rabbi David HaKohen. strive towards utopia. You strive towards impossible. But if you claim and argue it on a halachic basis, it's altogether different than just a dream. But if... So much in in halacha, in halacha, both. How much of this is power by the rabbis? No, no, it's not. It's human expression. If it's halachic, it's one thing. But minhag is like a language. There's different idioms. There's different expressions. There's different accents. It's a human. It's a human. It's an interesting point. I don't know per se. We'll have to check context. I don't know per se that they're arguing for their own opinion. You have a rabbi in the community, right? And he's got his kahal, and he's telling them what to do. Another rabbi is in his, and he's telling them what to do. All of a sudden, he has no say anymore. Right. He has no. He's nothing. He's just oh, we're going to follow this rule, and he has like they don't even have to listen to him anymore. Yes, I I hear you. I don't think that's what's taking place. I understand the power struggle in this context. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I'm giving them credit. Every shul, every I understand. I understand. Everyone wants to have control over his kahal. I understand. Yes, Jaime? Was there any major 
difference? Are all, all the rabbis in the 1600s were using the same halakhic process and coming to different answers? Was there reform and conservative? There's not reform and conservative. There is a plethora of new sources. The printing press is new with regards to Hebrew texts. We have a discovery, quote unquote, of new manuscripts. So there's a lot, and there's lots of minhagim, which in terms of mobility, of course, in terms of mobility, we're now envisioning it. We're now seeing other communities, understanding different things. We have we have traveling. That's what's really taking place. It's a real period. Now that's that's far from being that's far from being fully accepted in source number 12 for be David HaKohen disagrees is as two different synagogues it's not two different batek uh, dinim and as a result it's not only okay and maybe it should be applauded he doesn't say that that they have different approaches to this matter it comes to the fore with regards to Svaradi Pesach Halacha today in the following seeming contradiction of our man of Rabbi Yosef Karo Rabbi Yosef Karo in addition to writing Beit Yosef in addition to Shohan Aruch even his commentary on on Harambam Kesef Mishneh he writes as well his his uh, his angelic prophetic encounters with the Magid and his Magid Mesharim. But lastly, he writes as well, Sheilotu Teshuvot. He has response. It's called Afkat Rochel. There are two seemingly contradictory statements in his Afkat Rochel. Now keep in mind the context. A time period during which you now have some sort of immersion of different communities, one in the other. A time period during which we don't have a solid approach yet. In Sheilotu Teshuvot Afkat Rochel, in source number 13, he's asked by a community in which they've henceforth been following the Piskei Halachav Harambam, but now there's an Ashkenazic influence. How ironic. Amazing how history repeats itself. And he says they want to follow Rabbi Yaakov Ri. They want to follow the Baal HaTurim. Rabbi Yaakov Baal HaTurim, of course, is the, 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 the one who precedes Rabbi Yosef Karo in codifying law. What are they to do? So he comes down strongly. He comes down clearly. He says if they followed Harambam, even if the community's majority now is, call it Ashkenazim, call it, not necessarily Ashkenazim, because Rabbi Yaakov Bal Haturim ended up and spent much of his life in Spain. Regardless, it's the new approach to Halakha, the different one. You have Harambam, that's what you've been following, your community, continue following Harambam. But according to Harambam, this is permitted, and according to Baal Haturim, it's not. You continue with such an approach. There's a democratic approach, Dave, if we've ever seen one. That will continue, and it's a little surprising from Bio Sefkado to find such a claim. It's in his other response uh, later on in Siman Resh Yod Bet that he has an altogether different approach. And it seemingly contradicts, and the, the, the game or the challenge for Poskei Halacha today is to figure out how to resolve this seeming contradiction. And it's where Sefaradi Poskim today, generally speaking, are divided on this matter, ironically, how to deal with these two seemingly contradictory statements, because in his Avkat Rochel, is that my timer, John? In his Avkat Rochel, source number 14, oh boy, oh boy, oh gosh, all right, but I still have you here. In source number 14, in Avkat Rochel, he has, a dip, he has an altogether, no, that's it, all right, all right. Next week will be an honor of you, the following week, we'll do an honor of your son, we'll keep you here. Anyway, it's Adrian, that's right, the whole summer, is in honor of Adrian, so that's, that's right, yeah. Source number 14, Avkat Rochel and Siman, 
Resh Yod Bet, he has an altogether different approach, seemingly. Because over there, he's got the following concept. He shares or he borrows a concept that we have in the context of kosher and not kosher. And it goes like this. It, it, the words are kama kama batil, which means to say, for example, let's say this cup were filled, and let's imagine there's a huge vat of wine or something of that sort. And in turn, forbidden beverage is now falling into it. Or it's crops, and there's forbidden crops that are falling into it. What sort of forbidden? It's not kosher for one reason or another is dropping into it. The concept, generally speaking, and there's a debate and dispute about how, when to apply this, is kama kama batil, which means as each drop falls in, it becomes a null. It gets mixed in with the larger capacity, and we look at the number, and now it got transformed to being kosher. And the next one, the next one, even if the majority now is, quote, the non-kosher thing, since you didn't set it up as such, but it was falling in, kama kama batil, says Rabbi Yosef Karo. That's the way it works in a community as well. He says, even if you entered into a community and they're now the minority kama kama batil each individual who enters in gets annulled he comes afterwards he becomes one of them needs to become one of them it comes to the fore this issue in the last of our ruptures and it's 1948 and beyond into 2022 we have this new place it's called Medinat Israel we have the establishment of the land of Israel as we know it today it's our last as we know of ingathering of exiles when now living in this land and the question is I have a Moroccan neighbor a Yemenite uh, uh, neighbor down the hallway, an Ashkenazic one upstairs, a Polish Hasid and up uh, downstairs. I now have all sorts of different communities coming together in the land of Israel and, again, an opportunity, a time in which we're weakened. It's post-expulsion, quote-unquote, from Middle Eastern countries. It's post-expulsion, quote-unquote, from Eastern European uh, countries and the Holocaust. What are we to do now, says Chacham Yosef, as well as many of the rabbis of his day, Maybe now is an opportunity for unity of sorts. The question is, how do we define unity, of course? Now, of course, we're going to try to do it within the context of halacha. The Rav Kook, Alav HaShalom, Rav Kook in his Teshubot in Mishpat Kohen, and Chacham Vadei Yosef gets very angry at him for this. Pesach says, if you're in Jerusalem or you're in Israel and they're selling Sephardic Hechsher meat, don't bother buying it. Buy the Ashkenazic one if you're an Ashkenazi. Don't leave the ways of your mother, your heritage. Says Yosef, do you know how Pesach Alacha works? Rav Kook, it's almost as if you forgot source number 14. Kama Kama Batil, the Ashkenazim. They might, even though they're not, they might be the majority in the land of Israel. It doesn't matter. They're not actually, because as each one entered, they were supposed to go based on the original practice. What's the original practice? Who got the right of way? The argument of Hamvadiyah Yosef based on, you guessed it, rabbinic Sephardic sources is that the Sephardim <laughs> were always the majority for a long way back. He has so tradition. If you reverse that to America, we should all be Ashkenazim. Very interesting point. Hold the thought, <laughs> Joe. Hold the thought. Hold the thought. The question, of course, will be, the question, of course, will be, is this going to be a full ethnic cleansing in general? Do we do away Do we do we away with Ashkenazim? Does Hacham Vadya Yosef effectively do away with Ashkenazim? No, you don't understand. If you you take his argument to the full extent, you've wiped it out. And he had, over the course, the legend, I've never verified this, the legend is that as Rav Chacham Yosef was getting Peras Yisrael, as he was getting this very important award for his Shailot Shbot for his halachic works, so there was, a, there was a scholar of the time, Rabbi Rafael Shiloh, who was sitting there and 
said, I don't like your approach. And he said, why not? He says, you've done away with my, with my community. So what are you talking about? He says, according to your claim that the land of Israel is Atra, the place of Maran, of Yosef Karo, based on your claim that for 500 years we accepted Maran, of Yosef Karo, as the authority of the land of Israel, and as a result, Anyone who enters thereafter has to dissolve. How do you explain my approach? How do you explain my family? Have you done away with my family? And the response, allegedly, of Hacham Vadya Yosef on that encounter, in that encounter, was, no, 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 has shalom, I'm only talking to Svaradim. Now, he did certainly talk to Svaradim. He spoke and he fought with Moroccans. He spoke and he fought with Yemenites. There's no questioning that Ashkenazim, he was generally speaking a lot lighter with, and he would generally speaking, at least as per his son, cite source number six. Wait, wait, slow down. One thing. He, 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 um, his book is respected. Uh, I don't even know if that's his book. That's his son's book. Uh, the, the books that he wrote, 20 of that everyone's walking around with, are those respected and, and referred to by Ashkenazim? They're yes referred no? to. They're not per se followed. Nobody followed, yeah. And not nobody. They're not per se followed. It's is different that the biggest game. book in the last hundred years about... Oh, you want me uh, to determine the biggest books? I don't know. Is that going to be the next book? I don't. Is it the next? It might be the right now. I don't know. Dave, you get this lofty questions. You want me to take a stance? This well, is well, funny. You know, anyway, it's like. Well, like, I should ask dumb like, questions. Yeah, was he was fighting with the Yemenites and with the Moroccans because he took them seriously and he looked at the Ashkenazim as like that. It doesn't even G- Gabby says the Ashkenazim Patronizing. weren't worth his time. Yeah, it's, no, it's not Now, what I will tell you is he would cite to them source number 16. Source number 16 is Shailot Shibot Panim Meirot. Shailot Shibot Panim Meirot is a Polish, Polish Austrian rabbi, Rabbi Meir Eisenstadt. He lived in the 17th century into the early 18th century, mid 18th century, and in his he makes the counter argument. Halachically speaking, at the end of his Teshuban, Siman Kof Kaf Aleph, he says it's not so. Ashkenazim follow the Ramah, Svaradim follow Shohan Aruch, irrespective of where you are. Any of this sort of business, I'm injecting, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interpreting, any of this business of being dissolved does not and would not exist for us to keep in mind, by the way, his time period. He's during a relatively calm time period with regard to Polish Jewry. Late 17th, 18th century, not really dealing with pogroms. There's a, an acceptance of different approaches to halacha, different minhagim, different. We don't need that unifying force and fact. Hacham Vadya Yosef, in contrast, is dealing with a time period during which he can capitalize. He is envisioned that by his adherents, by his followers, as the next Rabbi Yosef Karo. It's not such a far stretch. Hacham Vadya Yosef very much, number one, invokes the words of Rabbi Yosef Karo constantly. And number two, his methodology is almost identical. He says, I'm going to take all the plethora of opinions into account. That's what Rabbi Yosef Karo, if you recall, told us in his introduction to Beit Yosef. And I'm ultimately speaking, going to relay to you the proper approach. Now that's not to say quote unquote that others can't do differently although there were occasions in which, I don't know if it's his true callers or otherwise he did debate hotly and fiercely the Ashkenazim on certain halachot with this rationale. The one that comes to mind is a class we gave here some years ago. It's on the issue of whether women can make berachot on positive time bound mitzvot. Of course, this is a long-standing question. Back to the times of the Rishonim and Masechet Roshanan, Daflamid Gimatosafot, cites from Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, of course, being a grandson of Rashi, that women. 
women can, even though they're not commanded in positive time bar mitzvot, they can make the beracha on them. Harambam and turn Shohan Aruch is of the opinion that they may not. It's a beracha levatala. What are we supposed to practice? What have we practiced? Long conversation for another time. The history in that class is very significant to the extent that 200 years ago, Hacham Avraham Antebi says that there are women in Halab who make beracha on lulav. It's very significant, but for our purposes, here's what happens. About 60 years ago, Hacham Vader Yosef debates his contemporary, Rabbi Waldenberg. Rabbi Waldenberg, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, Waldenberg is the author of Sitz Eliezer. Sitz Eliezer is a large collection of Sheilot Tishbot. Hacham Baruch described Rabbi Waldenberg as being the friend of the Svaradim. He said, we were all friends with him. He said, us Svaradim, we were studying in Porat Yosef, and he was amongst the Ashkenazim, but he wanted to know Halacha, so he began hanging out with us, and as a result, he became one of us. Then he has an aside in which he says he wasn't. This is uh, published in the Torah Hacham Baruch books uh, by uh, Shaul Haddad. He, he transcribes this uh, as, as Hacham Baruch having said. So he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. We were a lot sharper than him. <laughs> no, 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 but he doesn't end with that. You know, he has a sweet ending. He says, however, look at his diligence. Because he was so diligent, that's why he was so prolific. Anyway, that'll be in the case he, ha- he has a fierce debate. Hacham Vadia Yosef does. He says, even Ashkenazi women should not be making Berachah Miswot which is unprecedented. Why not? If they live in Eretz Yisrael, don't you realize Eretz Yisrael is Atra de Maran? It's the place of Shohan Aruch. It's the place of the Sfaradim. The claim of Hacham Vadia Yosef to that extent is not new to us. It's not so surprising. It certainly has an appeal during the time period. I'll remind you again, post 9-11, everybody's got the American flag. We all want to be unified. Here's the unifying factor. Our practice. Our way. Now, that's not to say that he didn't have his debates even on this issue. Because during his time period, this is well known, Moses, we once had someone come to the Knesset and talk about this other side of it. Uh, in in Mishpete Uziel, the former chief rabbi of Israel, uh, he has the following argument, and it was followed by others, that on some matters, in order to unify, perhaps, we should bow to the Ashkenazim. Back to Gabby's point. Says Chacham Vadia Yosef, I'll unify, certainly, not to with the Ashkenazic way, right? In other words, it's Atred Maran, and as a result, one of, what's a result in Hesheilot Teshubot, one of the matters that was an early debate for Chacham Vadia Yosef was the matter of Yibum and Halitza. You see, according to Shohan Aruch, in contrast to Ramah, we do Yibum. Even today, if there's a leveret marriage circumstance, a husband and wife, the husband dies without children, the wife falls to the brother, Halitza, uh, maybe the, the brother should have this uh, shoe procedure and process in which there's a statement and move it like that. That's one opinion of the Gemara's opinion of Ramah. That's what's supposed to be Kodem le Yibum. Shohan Aruch says, Yibum Kodem le Halitza. Ideally, you do Yibum. Chacham Vadia Yosef tells the story when he was there in his Shailot Yabi Omer. He says, I'm a Dayan in Petah Tikva. It's a place in Israel. I'm a judge, I'm a rabbinical court judge, and here's a Sephardic couple who comes in front of me, and it's a leveret marriage situation. And they're debating whether they're going to go through with this. And I fiercely demanded that there be a boom. But they weren't so interested. But I explained to them why they should be interested in one another. And then in there he cites, but you should know the current chief rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Nisim, he doesn't agree with me. Rabbi Yaakov Nisim believes we should partner with the Ashkenazim on this matter. According to the testimony of his son, that's one of the matters that made him leave the rabbinate in Petah Tikva. I can't stand for that. But what do you mean unifying Chacham Vadia Yosef? That's right, unifying if it's going to be my way, if it's going to be the way that I believe is the appropriate 
appropriate way. In short, what we've hopefully discovered and realized is that far be it from absolute unity at any point, the life, the vibrancy of any nation, of any people is going to be from the plethora of opinions, from the different approaches, certainly, but we've nonetheless noticed that at separate and specific junctures during our history, there's been a drive to unify, and it shouldn't take us by surprise. From the time of the Gemara, through Haram Bamshul, through Shohan Aruch, through the establishment of the State of Israel, we found opportunities and circumstances where we understood this is important. If we're going to keep our strength, we better come together. And of course, and the irony, as Sammy pointed out, is there's going to be divisiveness about how to unify. Rav Cook is going to say one way, and Chacham Vadia Yosef is going to say Rabbi Yaakov Nisim is going to say another way. But the vision, the vantage point is this isn't just a nice idea. This is something that should be halachically, law system, structurally binding. The understanding in turn of keeping it together, the concept of Yom Yerushalayim, is one which rings true in halacha until today, and perhaps more so today than at any other stage in the past. And now when you hear the words about Chacham Vadia Yosef being Mahazir Atara, I remember living in Israel. I remembered on every bus a picture of Hacham Vadia Yosef with underneath it, Mahazir Atarali Yoshna, which loosely translated means restoring the crown to its original state of being. What's the crown? Shas. What do you mean? Shas party. That was the concept. Now, what's Mahazir Atarali Yoshna? It's not only. It does. It does. It's restoring the crown to its original. There's no question, Joe. Joe, there's no question. I'm just telling you, his battle, his battle cry, though, of bringing it back to the way it once was, in his mind, he has halachic grounding for it. In our mind, he has philosophical, ideological grounding for it. Of course, there'll always and should always be a debate about how to do so, but the general picture of, as a nation, we seek that unity, and how better than through our own practice is one which we've noticed and discussed and debated throughout.